a bunch of tech writers walking to a bar and nah, I'm just joking. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast. Today, we're not trying to make sense of what's going on in European technology, as we usually do. Today, we're doing something much more entertaining. I'm joined by three fantastic newsletter writers, Brad Bivens from Venture Desktop, Paki McCormick from Not Boring, and Sija from Sunday Snapshots to play fantasy M&A. Should Apple buy Peloton? Should Amazon acquire Doctolib? And most importantly, will the French government let that happen? Should we get Brian Chesky on the phone and push him to merge with Zillow? How dumb would Uber have to be to acquire Lilium? We try to answer all those questions and much more. We don't really have a name for this. We don't know if we'll ever do it again, but playing bingo with technology companies was incredibly fun. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Gons. I write Seed Table, a newsletter on European technology. There's four of us here, so and you'll recognize me because of my crappy accent. So I'm Sid, and I write a weekly newsletter called Sunday Snapshots, and I talk about uh, sort of the best books, academic papers, and, and business news of the week. Uh, I'm Packy. I write a newsletter called Not Boring, which combines business strategy uh, and pop culture to make it a little bit more fun and approachable. All right, and I am Brett, Brett Bivens. I'm an early stage venture investor at a firm called TechNexus, and I also write a weekly newsletter, not, not quite on par quality-wise with, with these guys, but it's called Venture Desktop and focuses a lot on the, the innovation economy and, and actually a lot of the stuff that I think we're going to talk about here today, sort of fun, fun ideas for how, how the business world can change through M&A and investment and uh, things like that. And listeners, Brett has been on an absolute tear recently with his his writing. So don't. don't <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I have no idea what he's talking yeah. about. <laughs> We're all just shaking our heads here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. So, Sid, you want to take it over with the first uh, idea? Yeah. So, my first idea is actually one that's kind of been you know discussed around the internet a, a, a little bit, which is Apple acquiring Peloton. So, so for those who don't know, you know, Peloton is this kind of, you know, stationary bike that, that you can order and they also have a treadmill that you can kind of um, have in your house. And then there's this whole universe of, of content and training around it. And I think that, you know, in, in recent years, Apple has come around and, and really doubled down on health. And one of the core aspects that's sort of missing from that, from that piece has been the social element. And I think that out of everyone that I see, Peloton has done an extremely good job of kind of cultivating that community, but not doing that uh, with something that's in person. So obviously there's things like berries and, and CrossFit and all that. And I think all those are really, have done an extremely good job cultivating communities in person. I think Peloton is the first or one of the first sort of networks that I see that is, that has done an extremely good job cultivating that community of, of sort of trainers and, and, and classes and everything online. And I think that it, it's, it, I mean, it kind of plays on the now classic playbook uh, for Apple, which is you have this differentiated hardware, you know, upfront, and then you kind of sell services on it. And, and so I think that it kind of le- lends really well into their, into their 
current strategy, but it kind of gives them some some social muscles, which you know, which they definitely lack. I think it makes sense. Why is Apple? Why does Apple love sitting on piles of cash as much as it does? <laughs> you know, like that's that's the one thing with any Apple acquisition idea is that they just don't do big splashy things like this. Why do you think that is? I think it's. I think one of the reasons is 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 they pride themselves on their. It, it's kind of not in the 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 so the company DNA to grow via M and A. Now, I think mostly it's just because it's it's never worked, and or or, or they've they've never tried it, and so as as far as I can think, all their all their the only thing the only serious thing that I can think of that they have acquired and kind of integrated really well into their product is Siri. I think Siri was, a, was a separate company and then they, or, or I, I think it was a different name and then they acquired it and they kind of developed this, you know, on their, you know, they rebranded it. Apart from that, I really cannot think of anything that they've done. I mean, um, and so they do tons of acquisitions on the, on sort of the software and ML side, but I think that they, the, I mean, the product design DNA is so strong that, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a little bit of just, you know, arrogance, which is that, Hey, we can do this, you know, better than, better than, I mean, and, and, and it's well-founded arrogance. Right. And so, I mean, it's, it's worked out great for them. They're, they're one of the most valuable companies in the world. <laughs> yeah. And that, that strikes, I mean, that kind of strikes me as, as kind of the path that they would, that they would go here. I mean, it's not like totally clear to me how, how they think about social or what the, what the value in, in sort of social is for Apple. And, and so like to, to your points on them being pretty active acquirers, I think, like you said, of enabling technologies like ML and, and, you know, I think things in the, in the fitness space, like computer vision could be, could be really compelling. It seems like, I mean, there are definitely companies out there that have pretty interesting IP around different mm-hmm. things for fitness devices at home devices. You know, I, I sort of wonder if that's almost the, to, to your point on sort of their, you know, earned arrogance, I guess, around being able to develop differentiated hardware, it's, it would be, it would be, it would be a big stretch for them to kind of make that leap and go after, especially a brand with such high, high affinity, because there's no way you're like, there's no way that you're going to, I mean, I guess maybe you could if you're the you know largest company in the world, but to, to sort of take that in and, and call it like the Apple Peloton or something like that, you know, I think it's yeah. like, it's hard to, that brand has so much sort of standalone value on its own. It'd be really interesting to think about how they would, how they would approach that. No, totally. Good. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, I think there's, there's another piece to this too, which is they have HealthKit and SDK and they're in this position to kind of be this agnostic platform that takes in all of this health information from so many different places. And, you know, that's a product that, I've thought about before, like, how do you take all this disparate data, not just about your health, but about your, you know, what you're reading and all of that. And Apple's in the best spot to actually do that. So I wonder if they even want to make a play and own kind of one of the inputs to that, uh, the mm. risk of turning off the other inputs. Is it even worth it to spend hundreds of millions of dollars just to get an input for HealthKit? Yeah, so I think that something that's interesting is I, is I actually wrote about this a couple of weeks ago about like sort of centralization and the problem with Apple being that, you know, we're so comfortable sharing different parts of our lives with a company like Apple. Think about payments, you think about, you know, increasingly health, if you think about sign in with Apple and they have this ability and they've increasingly increasingly sort of leveraged it to be extremely aggressive on, on sort of privacy. 
but I mean, my, my whole thing is that if you're not comfortable with sharing this with, with someone like Facebook, I mean, and that's kind of the, the hypothetical that I always ask is, would you be okay sharing all your health data with, with, with Facebook and, and, or, or, you know, I mean, what's more interesting is the combination of all those, all those pieces of data. And I'm not so sure, you know, and, and so I think you guys bring up an interesting point, which is that it is a agnostic platform and they seem to be doing okay. It wouldn't make sense for them to sort of create an input. But I think in many ways, they're, they're making the Apple watch an input. So, you know, in, in terms of workouts, in terms of, you know, now they have sleep analysis and all that. So I wonder how, you know, how you're thinking about like reconciliating that. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about like what would happen, it seems like Apple, the direction Apple's going is like closer and closer and closer to to the body. So it's like they're they're sort of, I mean, they're, they've like created this, almost this organ that we carry around with us, like this human organ in the phone that's this, you know, massive data input. They've got the watch, they've got, you know, sort of like they're, they're recreating your ears, they're recreating your eyes with sort of the, the VR glasses, like they're trying to get kind of closer and closer to to like the body. So that, that's another thing that's like, maybe they just see that as, uh, again, a, a less valuable input because it's, it's less, yeah, I mean, less, less close to us on, on such an ongoing normal basis. <laughs> I don't know, but, but I think they're, they're definitely like, there's definitely to, to the point Packy made on them just sitting on a bunch of cash. I mean, I think if their, if their vision that Tim Cook has laid out is really to make, you know, the largest impact on the world of healthcare and kind of to be the, the foremost company in the world of healthcare, there's certainly places for, for them to spend it. So I, I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Well, if, if you think about Apple trying to get closer to the body, I think a more interesting acquisition or M&A idea could be acquiring the outer ring. So say that I was looking at your finger. That would make a lot more sense, I think, from an Apple standpoint. So uh, yes, the, that hardware is, is a lot easier to integrate than a huge bike. And they also have this technology that they could use in theory to just make the Apple Watch better. Yeah, I think I, I almost wonder if there's too much overlap between what the Aura Ring does and, and, the, and what the Apple Watch does. The one sort of crazy idea I had was I can totally, and so many people would go for this, Actually, may not may not go for it, but 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 it's it's kind of a um, or an amazing idea or like a really stupid idea, is sort of Apple and Hermes get together to do these like in, like wedding bands, like Aura Ring style wedding bands. Because I think one of the things I've heard is that people get this like fancy wedding band, but then they don't really they don't want to wear uh, or or they get like a secondary ring that's like simpler or or, or whatever to wear every day. And so I, I think something like that could be really interesting. But, uh, you know, for me, when I did, uh, I did put it down and I was thinking about it, but I just think there's way too much overlap with the Apple Watch to really make it a, to, to, to make it like a convincing acquisition. But I'd be curious to hear if you guys think otherwise. I do think that's kind of the direction. I think it's, you know, I don't think that Apple has an issue with kind of like building the right form factor and getting the distribution for a new piece of hardware. I think if there's something, again, it's hard to see them acquiring like a, a brand necessarily. I could certainly maybe see them partnering. It's hard to see them acquiring a brand, but if like Aura had, and I don't know the ins and outs of Aura or like Whoop or 
some of like a, to take it to another part of like the health and wellness category. Some of the companies that are coming out today with different like glucose monitoring solutions to to track metabolic health, like all these different companies. If there's something like really core wrapped up in that, that you know, Apple hmm. with their you know, armies of lawyers and billions and billions of dollars in cash feels like they can't like get around to build the right solution. I think that's where some of the valuable acquisitions for for Apple start to come in. I mean, there's certainly others that would love to acquire brands like that and will spend tons of money to do that. But for Apple, it seems seems like that would be sort of the approach is the sort of under the hood stuff would be the most interesting to them. So we're, we're speaking about health. I'm going to pull us out of the Apple rabbit hole. And then I want to give the mic to Brett, uh, who had a very interesting idea about health as well. Yeah. So, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of my ideas. So like maybe the context, so I'm, I'm from the United States and I live in Europe. And so some of the ideas that I was sort of thinking about around M&A were what, what European acquisitions could make sense for some of the large tech companies in the U S or just large companies in general. And one of the things that, that I was kind of thinking about was Amazon's foray into health. I think it was their, their pill pack acquisition, a lot of the stuff that they've done with Amazon clinics, just the, just the, the broad set of you know, stuff they've done with health insurance as well, alongside JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway in the US, they're really taking like a, an end-to-end approach to looking at areas that they can really plug into the healthcare system in the US. So one of the, one of the ideas that, that I had was sort of Amazon acquiring Doctolib, which is a kind of a unicorn company based in France. I think, I don't know how happy the, the French uh, population and the government would be about a, a big U.S. tech company getting their hands into the French healthcare system, but but you know I think it's it's kind of interesting. It's you know Amazon continuing to look at how they can expand access to new markets globally. Doctolib, for those that don't know, is sort of this online booking system that has expanded into a bunch of other categories as well to help doctors essentially find patients and expand their relationship with patients and to help patients uh, find the right doctors. And so it's become sort of this, this online marketplace and, and vertical SaaS tool in some ways for, for the healthcare system here. And it's been a really successful company. It's kind of ubiquitous. Everybody uses it. And I think that sort of thing, sort of how does, how does Amazon start getting access, direct access to uh, consumers around Europe could be, could be an interesting play. I mean, I think there's there's other ways that they could go at it too. I mean, I think uh, Gons, you had you had some ideas as well about how they could how they could sort of expand their footprint in healthcare outside the U.S. into into the European market. Yeah, absolutely. So my thinking was on Amazon acquiring Allen, the the French startup. So for for those of you who don't know, Allen is essentially healthcare reinvented. Right now, they they own a big part of the market in in France, but they're quickly expanding to other countries in Europe like Belgium and Spain. They're at something like 60 million ARR right now. They have about 80,000 members. And, and with health being more of a top priority for individuals after the pandemic, and then Alan sort of slowly taking over Europe. Amazon has been looking at healthcare for a while, and sort of Europe is the perfect place to do it because it's A, fragmented, uh, and then less crappy than in the US. So you got a better place to start with. Yeah, the, the interesting thing, I was sort of looking at this, too, I was like, okay, so Amazon sort of did the, you know, one of the one of the things they did in the US was buy Whole Foods, and they sort of can start to use that as like a distribution center and, you know, all these all these different things that you can do with Whole Foods. And I think there's even some stuff about, I think the guy's name is John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole Foods, talking about how Whole Foods could actually be sort of a 
move into sort of more of a pharmacy role and a health role. And so that in addition to a grocery store, Whole Foods in the U.S. becomes sort of this uh, one-stop shop that Amazon owns for everything kind of food-related, nutrition-related, and, and kind of healthcare-related as well. And I was looking, and I think there's like, there's so many really interesting things about, you know, and I think, Gons, you know this really well from studying the European ecosystem, how how challenging it is for for companies to scale across all these different markets because of the fragmentation and because of like I was looking at France and I was like oh could could Amazon do that same thing here and just go and roll up a bunch of like pharmacy chains and the the law that I found and I don't know if this is like entirely accurate but a, a pharmacy in France has to be owned by a a pharmacist is that what it's called a, a pharmacist sorry it has to be owned by a pharmacist and you can only own one so there's no sort of like there's no way they can go and like make a big splashy acquisition in that space and just roll up a bunch of retail locations. And those rules differ by, by country. So it's kind of interesting <laughs> to think about how, how a company like that would go, would go about, I don't know, ma- making a play in, in some of these markets where it is just so fragmented. Although they haven't had a problem kind of dominating the European market in other, in other areas as well, kind of the big tech companies. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but I, I, I thought that was like such a weird, a weird rule. But anyways, continue, sorry. I got us too far off track that we don't we don't know where to. No, I mean that, that one that was fascinating. That maybe suggests some marketplace model somehow where where the pharmacists are using Amazon's kind of logistics network to to deliver you know pills et cetera from from their own owned pharmacies. Yeah, that I mean that's actually that that could actually be a an interesting yeah an interesting thing to think about with that. And I mean like even so something like a Dr. Lib which is like that marketplace for doctors. I don't know if they do anything today with with pharmacies, but you could sort of see this like fully integrated model of doctor to to pharmacy to, you know, there's a pharmacy on literally every corner here in Paris. So it sort of becomes like this kind of really interesting, yeah, really interesting model for 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 distribution. Has Amazon done any other than their own massive marketplace? Have they done any marketplace acquisitions? I, you know, PillPack comes to mind, Ring, Whole Foods. If there are all these things with a physical component or at least like the delivery of a physical product, and it seems like any marketplace or non-physical thing that they've done, they've spun up in-house. So, you know, Prime and Prime Video, uh, Amazon Music, all of that happens kind of in-house. There's no reason they couldn't buy a marketplace, but I'm just wondering if there's any precedent for them doing something like that. Good question. No idea. Um, but yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I think they've sort of owned the marketplace stuff themselves and, and gone outside for things that maybe aren't core to what they can, what they can build internally. I think that's probably my dream job, although I'm sure it's miserable, would be Corp Dev at Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is. Uh, but if you think about Alan, for instance, they're not a marketplace. You're just a SaaS company. And, and what they share with Amazon is uh, this obsession with customers but again from what i can think of most of of the acquisitions that they've done is is hardware right or well whole foods not hardware but has it has this very very they buy atoms yeah yeah they buy atoms yeah perfect yeah i don't know it's there's a lot to get into like there's also this question will you trust uh amazon with your health data and more importantly Will French people trust Amazon with their health data? <laughs> more, more importantly, will the will the French government let the French people decide to, to whether to even you know give them the option to trust? Like, I mean, I mean, I don't know, but but the answer to that seems to be 
No, usually. But there's a clear there's a clear distinction to me in the things that I would trust and I wouldn't trust, <laughs> and it's whether someone directly monetizes you, like Amazon and Apple, or whether they sell your data for ads, like a Facebook or a Google. <laughs> and so I think it's a lot easier to trust someone who directly monetizes you with your health data than it would be to trust Facebook, Google, or I mean, I guess Google has its own life extension uh, division, but. <laughs> Otherwise, like, you know, I, I really trust Amazon and Apple a whole lot more with my health data. No, I think, I, I, I think you're totally right. It, you know, the, the, the problem becomes when you start, you know, where's the off switch, right? Like, like once, if they decide to, to go into something that is, you know, yes, sure, it's, it's uh, sort of antithetical to their, to their DNA, but if you if it's like a really interesting or if it's a really integrated part of your life if i start if apple said tomorrow that hey we're going to sell ads on 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 you know using all your iphone data i don't think it would change you know i don't think like a, 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 you know there'd be that much churn if i'm being completely honest i mean it's such a you know you as as brett used the word i think and it was it was sort of the perfect terminology which is you're not going to let go of your organs that easily. And so it, it's about having that, uh, just that centralization. And then the, 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 comp the way the, or the decision that the, the, the direction that the company decides to go on can change on, on, on so many, you know, variables. And we see, yeah, like there's a corporate structure and, and there, there, there's, there's all this, but, you know, we think about, uh, you know, Tim Cook and, and, and sort of his, his close people being, being, sort of altruistic and, and sort of profit maximizing shareholders or, or sort of executives that could change, you know, like the, the next sort of round of, as, as you know, I love to see, you know, one of my favorite shows is succession, like the next generation of, of, of leaders may not be as competent and, 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 you know, and yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, I worry, I worry about that. I think there's, they're in the best position in the world though, where they'll let everybody else deal with those issues and just quietly collect 30%. I don't know why you'd ever get into that yourself if you're, if you're them. Yeah. No, totally. I, I mean, like I, this is totally way off track, but I think that 30% number is going to come down eventually. Like it has to. Well, I think, so Brett and I have been working on a piece that's tangentially related to this. And, and we were making this distinction, and this is a half half baked idea uh, for now. And that is the difference between uh, being an enabler and, and, a, and a grower. So if you enable something like an infrastructure company, let's say Stripe, yes, taking thirty percent, it's it's insane. But if you're uh, like a grower, let's say Lambda School, they essentially help you grow, and they make that very clear financially. Then taking thirty percent or seventeen percent of your income for for a while, it's not that bad of a deal. So, and if you take this to the, to the app store, like for gaming companies, thirty percent that's that's a pretty good deal. Like essentially, they run on Apple. But if you think about hey uh, and the HH, and and I don't want to like, it's this uh, this much longer discussion, but. What they wanted to do with Hey and the App Store, they didn't want to get distribution on the app. They just wanted to run it and, and allow people, their own existing customers, to do it. So, yeah, for that thirty percent, it's it's a bit of a steal, I guess. But I'm not sure if they're going to go down with that thirty percent. I wonder if there's something that you can do, like you do with podcasts, where they have the podcast feed that just shows up, and there's discovery, and there's all of that, and then there's the direct links to paid podcasts. I wonder if they 
maybe eventually do something similar with the app store where you can turn off the distribution angle completely if you want to and pay 15%, but you're not going to get any discovery. I, the, it would actually be really cool. And, 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 you know, for, I would totally do that for like, you know, go through the trouble, but I think the, the, App store experience, quote unquote, will 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 be sort of fragmented, and 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 you know the, I, I think the overlords at Apple would never go for it. Okay, so who wants to go next? Paki, you have a bunch of interesting ideas. You could yeah. Share. So I think that one, I have a few ideas here. Let's go because I know there's a few Spotify fans here. Let's go with Spotify and Road Trip. Originally, uh, I thought. Spotify and Clubhouse, I think, you know, if you're looking at what Spotify is doing right now, it's uh, taking as much ear share, so as much of people's time listening to things as possible and trying to divert as much of that ear share into things that they don't have to pay eventually under the next agreement with the labels that they won't have to pay uh, royalties on. And so Clubhouse is interesting from that perspective because you're going somewhere, putting something in your ear, talking, there's no music playing. Road Trip, you'd have to figure out how you, and just for background, Road Trip is an app, I think it's still in uh, test flight private beta, but where you can DJ a room and then have a conversation. So there's just ambient music in the background and then people talking, but done right, that keeps you in an app for a long time when you're having this ongoing conversation with people, which is what Spotify wants. I'm debating against myself here because I think the challenge with that is that the whole time you're playing music that needs to have royalties paid out on it. But I think something that enables kind of chat through Spotify is, is a really interesting angle for them to get this whole piece of people's lives that involves audio that they don't currently have. Yeah, yeah I think I that's, think that, I mean... Uh, um, go ahead, Brett. No, I was just going to say, I think, I think you're sort of spot on that. That does seem like the... You know, it's always been, I guess, many of us, I think probably all of us have, have written about Spotify at some point. And that does kind of seem <laughs> like the Holy Grail is continuously gaining leverage over the labels so that you have the leeway to do more interesting kind of, you know, product features and things that allow you to monetize in other ways and, and hope that that kind of virtuous circle gets you to a point where, again, you have more leverage to renegotiate terms, et cetera, and you, you sort of realign the the business model and it does seem like they're getting to the point where you know i think just the, the moves that they're making in podcasting are so bold that it, it starts to feel like okay they have the they have the confidence in how much leverage they feel they have over you know their suppliers that they that they do want to start kind of branching out into into these new categories where they're not paying you know on a on a marginal cost basis for for streams and for engagement it does yeah i mean it's certainly you know, it's, it's their biggest threat in a lot of ways too. When you think about, you know, not, this is a, this is probably, this is a different sort of TikTok conversation than the, the firestorm that's <laughs> sort of happening uh, in the tech world right now. But the, the, the fact that TikTok is, is really like powering the growth of all of these new artists and all of these new songs and the discovery for, cause that's always been Spotify's thing. It's like discovering new artists, discovering new songs. That's kind of their initial way that they really gained a, a foothold over everybody else and did it better. And I mean, you could make the argument that TikTok has sort of taken the crown away from them in terms of being the discovery engine for, for, for music now. So I think they need ways to bring social into the product in a very real way, whether that's like, whether that's road trip, whether that's, you know, clubhouse or the, or, you know, I, I don't really see them building this themselves. Another one that's like a way bigger acquisition would be something like a discord, which has a different kind of social 
social element to it, it wouldn't necessarily be on the, along the same lines, but like, but yeah, I think, I think you're spot on tacky. Like there, this is a, this is sort of an existential requirement at, at some point in their evolution, it seems like. Totally. And I think it's uh, to your point about their boldness right now, you know, a lot of people I think go through the same realization when they analyze Spotify and they're like, Oh cool. So if they have all this podcast content, then they don't have to pay the labels and they're like, Oh shit. The labels actually like do get a cut of everything mm-hmm. that people listen to in Spotify. And then the next move is like, okay, cool. So this gives them leverage to, to negotiate with the labels. But I don't think that you're signing big deals with Joe Rogan, Kim Kardashian, the Obamas, like buying the ringer, doing all of these things. If you don't have a very strong feeling that you're going to be able to renegotiate podcasts kind of out of the cut that the labels take. And I would imagine part of that negotiation would be for something like, you know, maybe road trips, again, gray area, but something like Clubhouse or some audio social app would come out in that same negotiation, which makes something like this pretty appealing. Yeah, I think uh, one of the ways that, I, I, th- I think you're totally right, uh, Mikey, which is there, the bull moves like come with some sort of a, like a very good, you know, long-term plan to to improve their position against against the labels. And one thing that I see from the artist side would be which would be really cool is especially with you know uncertainty around you know covid it's just live concerts or just scalable concerts and i think that you know road trip is 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 kind of the perfect you know the the is kind of the perfect platform for that i think that it's you know having used it uh, or having been on it um a few times there there's kind of a a really strong um engagement function that would is is you know i really honestly didn't think that you could replicate you know you know on your phone in terms of the energy that you get or or whatever you know in in a live concert setting but i've got to say i mean it's 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 pretty convincing to me and it's it's extremely compelling and so i can totally see some of the best artists and more interestingly, some up-and-coming artists hold live concerts and, and, and things like that on the platform. And I think that that could be, you know, and that registered perfectly with, with, with Spotify's, you know, kind of strategy of, of, of improving discovery and, and, and moving the power, you know, because one of the big monetization strategies for, for, for artists are concerts. Um, and so if they can uh, sort of corner that, uh, you know, uh, that that gives them more leverage over the uh, over the labels as well what's what's interesting is that this idea of this online concerts would have been insane a year ago and now we're we're going through COVID. we've seen i think it was travis scott to a concert on, on fortnite so like that's sounds i don't know very very reasonable to me and it's it's kind of weird to be saying that right now could you even yeah, imagine, I mean, like, we, so this, <laughs> go ahead, Brad. I was just gonna say, we, this is an area that we've made, we haven't made investments in that area, sort of live concerts or anything like that, but it's an area that we spend a lot of time kind of looking at companies, meeting with founders. And it's, it is crazy. Like the, the number of people that have either, you know, either were working on this before or have started working on this recently is, is just massive. Like it's incredible. The number of like really, really high quality, talented people that have, started going after this space. So it, it all, it's almost like another one of those areas where Spotify can, you know, maybe partner or, you know, probably not. I think they've been pretty adamant, like Daniel Eck and the earnings calls about, hey, we're focused on on demand. 
and you know not not so much the streaming piece but they can let that market sort of like kind of play its way out and see kind of who the winners are and see who does it best and then you know in two three years time when they're at that when that market has reached that point when they have you know in in their mind sort of taken like fully taken ownership of the podcasting space from apple and you know, fended off what, what like Sirius XM is doing with all of their aggressive moves and acquisitions. Like, I think they do have a lot to deal with, like in the, obviously in their core business, like the music business, they've got a lot to deal with from a competitive perspective in the podcasting space specifically. But I agree, like they're the best position to be like this live concert kind of company. And I think like, it seems like they're, they're probably, if I was them, I would, I'd kind of let that play out and see what kind of comes through there while, while I'm continuing back to our earlier points, like, continuing to gain leverage, 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 and then I can eventually sort of own that space as well. That would, that would seem kind of the, the direction that they're maybe going. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Perfect. So uh, I guess we can move on with that fourth idea and let's see where this takes us. So this, this sort of split into two. Uh, so the company being acquired would be Lilium. So for those who don't know, Lilium is this uh, Munich-based company, and they do essentially um, air taxis. So 300 kilometers range, 300 kilometers an hour speed. They, they're not only working on the technology, so on, on the actual jet, which is really cool, but they are trying to build a transportation network, essentially. So they're trying to do both, which is a lot more interesting than just the technology. And they, I think they plan to do, have like an actual functioning network by 2025, I think. So it's, 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 it's a pretty insane company. It's one of my favorite ones. So there are two ways this could play out. So you had a typical airline like Airbus, for instance, trying to acquire something like this. Now when with COVID, with the pandemic, business travel and, and like just leisure travels, it's becoming more regional and less international. So something like, like that could really play out. And yes, the, the airlines are not doing great, but if you think about it, like Airbus is still worth like something like 60 billion, right? So, and, and Lilium raised, I think at a 750 million valuation or something like that. So this definitely checks math-wise. The other one is, is a company like Uber, just doing the transportation network angle, right? So. Uber is sitting in a few billion in cash. They did a huge acquisition with Postmates. So uh, they're playing on that, on that arena, I guess. So those both are, to me, very, very interesting. Two very different plays, but involving the same company. What if an airline yeah, I mean, bought them? Like tried to move like super, so not even Airbus, the manufacturer, but an airline sort of said like, we see this, you know, I can, I can think of like, you know, all the airlines are, are hurting pretty bad, but you think of like some of these more regional uh, airlines, like, you know, a, an EasyJet or a Ryanair or in the U.S., you've got companies like Southwest. I don't, I don't know the economics of those businesses. I, I know that the airline industry is pretty tough, but like you could almost see a world where those companies have made their bread on like those kind of one hour flights from city to city and, you know, have don't touch anything from with regards to like the, the long-term flights or the long distance flights or anything luxury related or, or anything like that. It's all about kind of efficiency and that, that kind of perfect network that works. It'd be interesting to think about those groups kind of like coming down market almost to sort of the, the micro regional level to power like even 30 minute flights. So it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, but I think all three of like the, the two you mentioned in that one, those are all like 
pretty interesting. And, and that, that company is so like far out in the future, kind of a sci-fi thing. It's, it's such a cool, such a cool concept in general. And it sounds like they're making pretty incredible progress because they've got really strong, really strong investors, like really credible people involved with the business. I think Atomico was part of the round. Tencent was part of the round. So yeah, absolutely. For Uber, it's, I think that's a really interesting one to dissect. Cause like, if you look at, you know, the Postmates acquisition and Uber Eats and kind of how Uber does these two different things, like they had Elevate going on and I don't know what's going on with Uber Elevate, but everything on the ground, they try to kind of squeeze into tighter and tighter routes where you can do more with the same people. You have zero leverage over the pilots who are able to drive a 300 kilometer short range mini plane. And it's like this totally different thing. And those people are also not doing, you know, food deliveries. So you can't squeeze as much out of them. So if you think about Uber as trying to own every piece of transportation, I think it makes a lot of sense. And that is one way that they can go. If you view them as like this thing that just owns ground logistics and transportation, I think it makes less sense. So it's a an interesting question on Uber around like, what are they trying to become and what makes the most sense for a business that's already losing so much money? Can they afford to, to go into a super uh, capital intensive thing like this and build something that is kind of tangential to their core business? Yeah, absolutely. If, if I had to debate myself and think in those terms, then it, it makes no sense because essentially Uber is, it's it's a cash play, right? Particularly when it comes to food delivery, and they are uh, playing against right now. So if you think about the the just eat takeaway acquiring GrabHub, like they essentially own the only food delivery companies that have positive unit economics because they don't do the delivery, the delivery. So it's it's essentially a cash race, and then spending billions on acquiring a freaking jet might, might not make a lot of sense, I guess. I mean, at the same time, it's totally the 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 you know the the, the way that Uber would go, which is just 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 throw you know tons of money at the problem, um, and then kind of figure out things things after that. So you know, but no, I think I I mean I'm I, thank you for 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 bringing this up. This is kind of the most most like futuristic idea that 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 I've heard, and. So just to kind of, you know, and, and I don't know about this company, like, what is the, what, is this like a helicopter? Like, is this like a car? Like, you know, can you, can you describe this to me in, in, in words? Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's more like a helicopter. It looks safer than a helicopter though, but it's, it's a four seater. So four people plus a okay. pilot, it's hundred percent clean energy. So it's electric, no noise, nor no anything. They, yeah. Plant, so they're building these launching pads that are modular and super easy to, to set up and to install like essentially anywhere. It, it works, it's, it's real simple. So you got a parking lot and you got a, like a terminal and then you got the takeoff area. And, and the mm -hmm. cool thing about this, it's, it's a vertical takeoff and landing. So they don't need a lot of space. So you can do it from the roof of a building. You can do it from like essentially anywhere anywhere. And I think their their plan is to work with with land developers and, and people in in cities and governments to to build a network of these things. And mm -hmm. I, I have no idea about the unit economics, but I don't know. It's so that's sort of how it works. It's it's like a it's a flying taxi, but much cooler than a taxi. <laughs> that's much, yeah much yeah better. yeah. No, that's that sounds insanely cool. Yeah, I think. Um, 
You know, I I actually think that elevator is still is still going on, and it's it's one of those uh, um, areas where they see. I was, I was sort of lucky enough to work with some ex Uber guys, um, like who were there since the very beginning, and and one of the things that that they you know one of the things that I learned about was just how open to experimentation at a very large scale the company is, and. I, I think, you know, you see them making very, very large sort of commitments in areas that are not figured out yet. And I think that that's, that's kind of bold. I mean, and, and I think that I see it as a company that, you know, despite how large it is now, continues to do that. And it's one of the few companies that I see, you, you know, it's continuing to do that and, and not just, you know, um, while they're still figuring out their, their core business I think part of it is that their core business is kind of hard. So they're always looking for this, hey, like what's our AWS kind of strategy, which allows us to do everything else or what's our ads, you know, if we do the, if, if we take the, uh, the Google analogy. Um, but if you think about, you know, they've done Uber Works, um, they've done Uber Freight, which was, you know, doing really, really well. Uh, and I think continues to do, uh, you know, extremely well. And so, you know, I, I, I actually totally see them, you know, going into this, this type of thing. I don't know. Yeah. Again, I don't know how it would compete with, with Elevate because I think they're, they're, they're looking at the kind of the same market, but I, you know, it, it would be extremely cool. And I see Uber being in a very good position to kind of bring all their, all their routing and, and their sort of, you know, optimization um, chops to the, to the problem thing is you, you probably need to acquire them before they build a network because otherwise there's no way you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at, at least not over maybe maybe someone like airbus and that using like partnering with airlines as brad mentioned but this like if you wait until 2025 and they actually make it work then yeah they are over essentially just um, <laughs> yeah anyone wants to throw another idea out there one fun one I had was Square buying Robinhood. And I think that, you know, Square already has sort of a cash app. And I think Robinhood and, and cash app kind of brought this uh, idea of, first of all, their, their demographics are much younger. It's, uh, you know, they, they've kind of brought on this idea of commission-free trading. You know, one of my favorite articles from last year, this is one by Dan Runs T of Trapital about cash app and, and hip hop, basically about the monetization strategy, the marketing and monetization strategy for, for cash, which is they bring in all these people through collaborations with hip hop artists, and then they turn it uh, and, and then they kind of nudge them towards cryptocurrency trading, which happens to be a lot more lucrative than 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 regular trading. But you know, they, they, you know, to use a, a, a Packy McCormick term, uh, I, I think that Cash App and, and Robinhood is this like anti-boring alliance of like trading platforms. And I think that, you know, them being together and kind of competing against the, the incumbents of like, Ameri like TD Ameritrade and, and Charles Schwab and, and whatnot. I think it'd be a really, really interesting, you know, sort of position that for the for the industry to be in because you know there are tons of um, things that that just come from scale, 
And I'd be curious to hear what, what people's thoughts were. I, admittedly, this is not the most well thought out idea, but I thought it would be just so cool um, to, to have kind of this, like, you know, the David's going up against the Goliaths, you know, together. Yeah, I, you know, I, I had a, uh, a Robin Hood idea on my list as well. And mine is Robin Hood buying something like an Adam Finance. I think hmm. in either way, Robin Hood has this incredible thing happening, which is all of this demand flooding into the app, which is on one hand, great. You know, you want that to happen for your product. On the other hand, they're not ready for it, right? Like the app goes down on the heaviest trading days. I use Robinhood and I feel like kind of a joke sometimes for using Robinhood, <laughs> but it's so easy. Um, but the app goes down, like the whole network goes down on some of the heaviest volume days. And so you're just stuck sitting there with your positions. There's almost non-existent trade support, which is like, I'll submit something and then maybe like three or four days later, I'll get an email back, which is awful and is kind of one of those things that is kind of a foundational issue that leads to something like the the young trader who committed suicide because he saw this negative number in his account that had he talked to a human, they would have told him actually wasn't a big deal and was just the way that things were organized. So I actually think Robinhood, if it wants to take advantage of this surge in demand that it's getting, needs to get a little bit more serious. And so if you add something like an Adam finance to the mix and Adam's young, but really like it's, they're trying to be kind of the, the Bloomberg terminal for, for this generation of traders. It's uh, an incredible even, product. It's, it's awesome. an incredible product. Yeah, and they yeah. just added out, they added hubs. So it's like kind of their screening tool. Uh, their pro features are continuing to get added to. They have a chat functionality. So all these things that are really great. Plus, I think probably they go into video at some point and take advantage of this David A. Trader wave. And so you can follow traders. I think there's this huge kind of uh, market waiting to happen in real time following day, trader, day traders. And I, I think that they're in a good position to do that. But the more that it can do to start getting serious once this market, if this market goes back to normal at some point, but probably once it does, and it's not this really fun thing where every day, like even on a really bad day, it pops back up later in the day, they're going to actually need more serious tools for, for analysis if they want to kind of keep with people uh, as they grow and become more serious and actually have nest eggs that they need to protect for their family. And so something like an Adam Finance, I think is, you know, if you look at, Charles Schwab and the Bloomberg terminal being for the same generation. I think Robin Hood and then Adam Finance are that kind of pairing for the new generation. But yeah, I think Robin Hood should do something to beef up and take advantage of all this demand. One of the things that, that one of these games that I now play whenever I, I look at a new app is, is how many of these uh, features or design elements were stolen from Superhuman. And, and if you look at Adam, you'll, 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 you'll see tons of, let's say, inspiration. But no, totally. I think that it's, it's really cool. I mean, I like that idea a lot more than than, than my idea because it is that like I, I, you know, even though they have like Robinhood Gold, which which you can, which you know I don't have, but but I, I you know apparently it, it it gives you like more sort of market research and whatnot. It definitely doesn't have anything close to what Adam Finance has, and so I think that that could really be cool. And it, you know, w what I wonder is how many of the of sort of for Robinhood users are, are using it on a on on sort of a hey here's a company I'm in, I'm I'm interested in I'm going to buy a few shares versus how many people are using it which would have an intersection with someone who would want to use like Adam Finance is like the key question that I would try to answer um, with that which is that those yeah I'm just not sure what the what sort of the audience overlap is it, you know I think a casual trader might like doesn't really want 
kind of the, you know, if they're like, hey, I use Zoom every day. That sounds like a great app to buy or a great share to buy. I'd love to buy Zoom. And like they go on, and like that's kind of the, I feel like that's the platform that, or that's the consumer that, that, that Zoom looks for. Yeah. Or, or that, that, that Robin, Robin gets. And I think you're right in a market like this that is pretty much consistently up. That is so momentum based. So you should just kind of be buying what everybody else is buying and Wall Street Bets tells you to buy because they actually moved the stock. Maybe that persists forever. I can't imagine that it does. And at some point, yeah. I think people will want to be able to find, you know, like their own unique mm-hmm. takes and, and companies to buy versus I don't know, I forget the name of the company that just tracks the flows on Robinhood. But you see the same kind of popular names getting overbought. And at some point, Again, theoretically, I have lost all sense of what actually makes sense anymore. But at some point, probably that goes away and, and real analysis of some sort comes back into the picture. Yeah, if, if, if I think about Robinhood, I immediately think about Wall Street bets. And that's, of course, the most extreme end of the spectrum. But what I think it's, it's key here is like Robinhood is mo- more than a finance app. It's, it's a gaming app for, for many people. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's a betting app or a gaming app, uh, however you want to call it, but there's this gamification that, that really, really makes it work. So I'd be worried, or yeah, I, I'd be trying to answer the, the, the same question you proposed it is, are they even the same customers? Is there an overlap? Like what's, what's that Venn diagram looking like? Yeah, like do, do, do all these, you know, people who end up buying, you, you know, sort of good stocks, quote unquote, like they, they end up buying a Zoom or they end up buying, you know, whatever right now, do they, do they move to a more serious platform once they realize, hey, like this is something that, you know, is, is, is not a, you know, a, a joke. And I don't think that that process is that difficult. Like I, I know of my friends who, who have had to do that for their jobs or whatever, because their company needs them to be on a particular platform. And it's not, you know, a, like, yeah, there is some sort of lock-in but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not crazy. And the other, just debating against myself here, I think the other piece of this is looking at the way that Robinhood makes money. And so I think like, actually I have a buddy who's starting a FinTech app and a, a trading app in particular. And so he's looked at the business models of like a wealth front. Actually, these companies that make a tiny percent on AUM don't do that well. Robinhood does because it sells flows and it sells trade data to hedge funds who can essentially front run it, which I don't have an ethical issue with because I'm not like really timing the market and caring about like, you know, fractions of a penny on each trade that I make. Whereas the hedge funds can make a lot of money off of that. And it means Robinhood has a good business, but I think they're probably disincentivized actually to have people take the time to slow down and make smart trades and do all those types of things. Cause you know, they make money on people being idiots and hedge funds <laughs> buying that data about people being idiots. <laughs> yeah. It's that idea of just like reduction of friction. And to introduce friction would be would not be good for their for their sort of business model. I actually didn't know that. I actually didn't didn't know that that was their monetization uh, strategy. So that's cool to hear. How are we doing with time, guys? You guys have a few more minutes, or want to want to play? Want to try with another idea? And one last one, and then we'll wrap up. If, if you've got a good one, Gons, go for it. I don't know, Packy, like the the one you wrote about the Zilbian yeah. or yeah, Zilbian B, like that. That's probably like the most fully baked one. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. yes. probably has has like has like the best has like the actual like most thought out thesis around it. So I don't know if we want to like do that or or what, but whatever, any whatever, whatever you guys want. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy yeah. to 
Yeah, Elizabeth. let's 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 take that on because because mine is uh, something like the European Commission uh, buying entrepreneur first just to build pockets of Silicon Valley somewhere else. But let's let's do that is a super that is a super interesting one though, Guns. We should talk I, about that at some point. Okay, let's yeah, no, the, the, let's do both really of them cool. time. Yeah, let's go go go, Bucky. Let's 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 try to fit both, and then we'll wrap up. Sure. All right. So, um, my next idea is that Airbnb and Zillow should merge, and I think that idea it, it came to me because we've been Airbnb being a place that we bought upstate, and during the pandemic we've noticed that there's a ton more demand because our place is about an hour and a half away from the city. So like within days, we noticed that there was a ton more demand. And then following that, uh, a couple of weeks later, there was a ton more demand for actual kind of home sales and home purchases. And so kind of my thesis on this is that short-term demand is predictive, uh, like short-term meaning the demand for a short-term rental product is fairly predictive of demand for a longer duration product. So I think the merger does a couple of things. One, it strengthens the Zestimate, which is kind of the key. There's two sides to this. One is the Zestimate is potentially a powerful thing that helps that helps Zillow in its iBuying, so its ability to kind of buy and sell homes and price that more sharply. The other side of that debate is that the Zestimate is really just a marketing tool and its job is to attract eyeballs. And so you don't really need to make it that much more precise. But with or without that, I think for for... Zillow in the iBuying, buying Airbnb allows allows Zillow and just kind of the combined company having this wide range of durations from one night to forever that you can buy in one place is really helpful. So let's say you're Zillow, you iBuy a home, you're in a market where maybe home sales slow down, you can flip it and put that thing on Airbnb and actually get higher yields in this period that otherwise would have been dead time where you're just killing IRR and hurting hurting the investment, hurting the return. Zillow works by essentially just having a page for every house with this estimate and just being this SEO machine. Having that SEO machine also helps Airbnb in this fight where you know, Airbnb and the OTAs are having to fight against each other through paid acquisition. Google's coming in on top of them and putting their own listings first on the page for hotels and for overnight stays. Um, so there's just, I think, a, a bunch of places. I, I'm not saying this super eloquently, but there's a bunch of places where having the ability to do one night all the way up to forever in one platform really, really helps. And then you can add all these interesting pro- products like the ability to uh, do a subscription where you can live in a different place for a month at a time and all these different things that you can do when you have these two companies combined. You stumped us. It was it was so good and so well put that uh, we don't have any. Don't <laughs> yeah, have any yeah I don't know. What, I, I don't. I don't know what to say. Let's you know. Let's get Chesky and 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 uh, the the CEO of, of Zillow on a on a call. Let's get this done. We we get like a finder's fee for fa- facilitating you know this 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 thing. But um, I hope so. <laughs> Apparently, Brian Chesky actually did read did read the article. So if you see it happening, then okay. You should. I, I mean, you should. You should make sure that you get like a cut of that. You know, like the facilitation <laughs> cut yeah. is. I, and I, you know, I think he's done a fantastic job. I think Rich Barton, and this is you know, to be a bunch of newsletter business newsletter writers talking about Ben Thompson on a podcast is maybe as cliche as we can possibly get. But the Rich <laughs> Barton interview that he did with Ben Thompson, I've never admired a CEO more. I don't think, and Rich Barton is the Zillow CEO. But just yeah. thinking about how he thinks about businesses, he's done this multiple times, and you know, he did the interview at a time where 
Zillow stock got wrecked in the market for introducing iBuying, but he just had this very, very clear plan where they have all of the demand and it's this massive $33.6 trillion market. You can be a pretty cool home marketing platform or you can potentially take this very small cut of this absolutely massive market by using your position as a place where everybody goes to look for homes. And so just like you know, putting him in charge of this behemoth in the, in the travel and hospitality and housing space, I think would be so cool to see happen. Yeah, Mikey, this is your, you, you realize this is your monetization uh, like <laughs> play, right? Like, like you write about M&A transactions that should happen. And then you take a cut of, of the of the transaction when it does happen. That you like this is your monetization strategy for not boring. And I'm even happy to undercut the banks on pricing if nine ninety nine a month. Yeah. <laughs> Just a basic newsletter subscription. That's that's all it takes. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering what something like that does to the market for on startups like Open Door, for instance. I, mean, I don't really have a good answer. I'd say I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah. I I love Zillow's position versus Open Door anyway, but I think it's so early. So I, I worked in a in a commercial real estate uh, startup before this, and housing is even is even more massive in terms of the, the implications of technology on, on the business. But it's there are all these really interesting plays where having both software, like the ability to do bits and atoms, is really valuable. But it's such a huge market that Open Door can be a massive company by just focusing on certain markets and owning them and taking a cut on, on kind of a, a very large swath of the housing transactions, while there's still plenty of room for Airbnb and Zillow. I think Airbnb and Zillow beats Open Door, but I don't think this is a winner take all market where all of a sudden the only place that you're gonna go to buy a home is Zillow Maybe it's not on a national level, but probably it is on a regional level or on a city level, I guess. But I, I don't know. It's, I mean, I, if we think that like the Uber versus Lyft pricing dynamics are fascinating, I think seeing Zillow or Zillow versus Open Door in a competitive market would be even more fascinating. Like, what do you do to generate deal flow early on in a market? Do you just try to absolutely spend to outlast the competitor? And again, whoever owns Airbnb in this case, you can produce higher yields by doing short-term rentals, assuming that you know that there's demand in that market. So it actually gives your gives you an ability to maybe even undercut where you think you can make money on the home sale itself because you're making you know a 10% margin for the six months that you keep it on the platform while you wait it out. So I think that is a really fascinating thing. It's like whoever has the ability to price more flexibly by offering more durations uh, and manage yield in that way, I think has just such a massive advantage versus being able to buy a house, maybe do some fix ups, sit on it and then sell it. The more flexibility you have there, I think the bigger advantage you have in terms of what you're able to pay. That's very cool. Yeah, you you could tell from that conversation that that that, that was the most well thought out idea out of out of all of us. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's like oh, I have I, I have no objections. <laughs> like, yep, <laughs> you did your job, Bucky. Okay, let's go with the last one then. So last one, that's on me. My idea and this, I have. Absolutely no idea how something like this could work, but it's uh, the European Commission buying Entrepreneur First via the European Investment Fund. So just for, for those who don't know, Entrepreneur First is a talent investor. They run six-month uh, uh, programs where they recruit talented individuals and then 
through the program, they find a co-founder, figure out an idea, then build a company, raise money, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then it's essentially off to the races after the, the program. Or the thought process behind this is Silicon Valley, or you could argue that uh, Silicon Valley is being unbundled right now. So the world is going remote. People are fleeing the, the Bay Area. Like the question is, what's next? Um, and what I think it's what's next is we're going to start seeing all these pockets of Silicon Valley norms and, and dynamics uh, somewhere else. And those pockets could be either focused on a specific region or a specific industry or whatever. But the question is, who is going to build it? And I think there's a very defined playbook for this. And I think Entrepreneur First has the knowledge to do this at scale. So um, the European Commission has this new startup nation standard, which this is essentially what they're trying to do, just foster innovation, foster entrepreneurship, foster startups, and buying out entrepreneur first, which would be insanely hard. Of course, their, their portfolio right now is 2.4 billion. So, but no one knows how, how best to emulate these pockets of Silicon Valley in other parts of the world than EF. Yeah, it's super interesting. Like it is, I, I agree. Like they, they do have that sort of that playbook for, for exactly what, what it is, that talent investing, that idea of bringing really smart people together uh, who don't necessarily have an idea to, to build a business. I mean, I think like the, anytime the government starts to get involved with, with startup investing, I get a little bit nervous. That said, I think there's like just being here in Europe and seeing some of the, like the, the positive impact that, and this is, I don't think this is a tangent because it's, it's pretty relevant, but like just when, when tons of capital floods into like a nascent ecosystem, I think some really interesting things happen. Like it creates a ton of noise at the early stage. I'm speaking about like what's happening here in France and guns. We've actually talked about this in the past, but like the, the amount of capital that the French government has pumped into the early stage French ecosystem through sort of like the, the sovereign wealth fund almost called, called BPI here is, is just like, it's, it's tremendous. And it, it's basically free capital for entrepreneurs to go and experiment with building a, a technology startup. And it creates again, a lot of noise at the early stage. And a lot of those companies fail and the returns on that sort of portfolio probably aren't particularly good. That said, like what it does is it just like accelerates generation two and generation three. It pulls those generations of entrepreneurs ahead a few years because instead of waiting, you know, waiting and waiting until the market matures, founders can go out and get easy capital and, and build their first business and fail. And then they've got some experience to, to sort of go from there. So I, th I think it is pretty interesting. Like what, what could you do to scale up? And, and like be as hands off as possible, I think is, is important too, but like scale up EF as much as possible, just with, you know, a ton of capital uh, is a really interesting idea. And obviously the European investment fund has a ton of capital to, to deploy and they're actively looking to, to do so. So it does, it does seem like, yeah, maybe like the, that, that piece of it. And then the other piece being like the later stage, how do you bring people who really know how to scale into markets is, is maybe the other piece. But I think, I think it's a really interesting idea. Yeah. I think there is, I mean, you know, listening to even to, to your podcast with, with Matt, obviously he's very influenced by the idea of CDS. And if you look back, kind of back at like Florence, for example, this idea of this wealthy, powerful patron supporting the arts, if you kind of 
put that onto the current ecosystem if you had the European Investment Fund as the, the, the Medici's in this scenario where they're just like, we want cool stuff to happen here and we're willing to fund this. Uh, I think that's a really interesting model. I don't know if it's like a, an acquisition or if it's just like, hey, we have this permanent patient capital sitting here that we're going to pump through EF because we think that you figured this out and we want, you know, we want all of the amazing, beautiful things that happen when you treat the startup ecosystem kind of like the arts and you don't have the same kind of, you know, return profile that you're looking for that a traditional LP would have. Uh, and you're really trying to kind of like transform the, the ecosystem and the, the infrastructure. I think that's a fascinating comparison and a fascinating idea. One of the, and this, this may be a tangent, but one of the things that I, I find really interesting is what the, what does the, or what do the ambitious people do in, in every country? And if you think about, let's say Singapore, for instance, the most ambitious people in Singapore go to government. That's sort of the default path for them. For in, in France, it's, it's part government, part finance, consultancy, and so on. In Europe, what I think one of the problems is this, trying to articulate it and sort of make justice to the argument, but in Europe, the most ambitious people don't build companies or most of them don't build companies. And, and what, like, what you have is essentially is a mechanism to change that default career path for the most ambitious people in Europe and make it more like Silicon Valley, at least the, the positive parts. So just expanding that to let's say Barcelona and, and Munich and Madrid and, and Lisboa and I don't know there are a million different cities where this could work because there's this very small flywheel of talent and capital that's going right now and when you bring in someone with the knowledge and the connections and everything that uh, I don't know an organization like EF has with the backing of uh, the European Investment Fund then it could really work out and, and turn into something very very cool. So. I think the you know the, the 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 idea that I come to when I think about this is how do you um, propagate capital and sort of best practices across organizations or, or or you know across these ecosystems while still maintaining some of that you know distinctive sort of innovative and and idiosyncratic you know cultural aspects of all these different geographies and I think that's the problem I see when sort of a company tries to go into another geography. And I see this with, with um, a um, country like, you know, India where, you know, super attractive market, tons of, you know, us companies try to go there and, and apply kind of a similar playbook and it almost invariably fails. And I think that, you know, how do you, so how do you, you know, exactly what you said, which is how do you get the, get the upside of that, which is the sort of the capital and the sort of the best practices nature of things, but keep the, you know, do it in a sort of culturally, not sensitive, but like, you know, but like a, a way in which you're cognizant of the culture. And, and like, I think that I'd say like to do one without the other is, is, is like a hard uh, like it seems to me like a hard problem and be, just because I haven't seen that being done very well in, in any other context, I'd be curious to hear, hear, hear thoughts on that. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. As, as Brett mentioned earlier, Europe is really fragmented across borders, ac across cultures, across language, across regulations, even across payment methods. So, but, but to counter 
your argument, or just to play devil's advocate here, if someone has done it, is actually EF. So they run cohorts in, in India, in Bangalore. They run cohorts in Singapore. They used to um, to do Hong Kong as well. They pulled out last year, so perfect timing, I guess. They they also have a EF in Toronto. So I think I I, I have no idea how, but they are taking this into account and and just getting successful companies out of multiple locations. So I can think of this company that came out of the Singapore cohort a couple of years ago that just raised like 10 millions called Transcendental or Transcendental or something like that. They're essentially low orbit satellites to just get uh, internet collection to the rest of the world. So like they, they play with those sort of deep tech, very complex problems. And so I don't know. No, I think that I, I think that's a great, you know, yeah, like you know, I just I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. I, 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 yeah, I'm curious to see how like who nails it because I think that there's actually bottom down effects is, or, or, or sort of there's like trickling like process knowledge that that comes out of someone executing on this very well, which is you know how can how can companies replicate when they enter like sort of a different market or an international market specifically. So I'd be, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in, in, in who can sort of crack this playbook first. And did Tomasek lead that $10 million round? I don't know. I can't remember. I saw the, like the pressure. That's an interesting model also is like just setting up the government fund as kind of the, the follow-on mm -hmm. fund uh, and as a kind mm -hmm. of later stage capital fund for the winners in the ES portfolio so that you know that there's this pool of capital sitting there once you kind of get past the early, the early stage. I think this is a perfect place to end on. Anything else, guys, or should we wrap up right now? I think that's a, that's a great place. Covered a lot of ground. This was awesome. Yeah. yeah. We certainly did. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. It's, it's been great. It's been a pleasure. Hope to do this soon again. Cheers. Yep. Always great to see the gang. See you guys. Thanks, yeah. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the C-Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to C-Table.com. C-Table is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.